0: Well, good morning and welcome back to Horizon. It is great to have you here. Isn't it awesome to see each other and to smile at one another. So whether you're watching out in the tent, we know some of you uh, still would prefer social distancing that's happening out in the tent. Many of you are watching online, so thank you for being here. For those of you here in the chapel, celebration one, uh, we can use full capacity again of the chapel, which is awesome. In case you whisked in here quickly, bagels are back. So we know that a little piece of heaven is back, bagels back, coffee is back, and we are just so excited about how faithful God has been. Thank you for those who have been watching online for the last 18 months, those who have been attending, serving, making an environment for those who have come back to make them feel warm and welcome and comfortable. Thank you for those who have been praying and giving and serving during this time. I think just two years ago we were in this room praying about putting in a video system and talking about how we might have a need for that. And you think about God's faithfulness and your faithfulness in giving during that time so that God could prepare us for this day. So it's a new day. Why don't you stand and worship with us. If you're on the atrium or watching online or out in the tent, feel free to stand and worship together this morning. Amen. Well, amen. It is great to worship with you this morning as we continue our verse-by-verse study of, uh, of the book of Amos. And pretty amazing as we've made it to chapter 8... In this book that's been about what do you worship? What's been at the core of your soul? What is the thing that will sustain you when earthquakes come and when challenges come and shake you? Quick reminder where we are in the Bible. Sometimes it's hard to remember where different prophets are and where this locates. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, this is a summary of the whole Old Testament. But for the sake of today, I just want to remind you that we've just finished a time of of the kings, King Saul, King David, King Solomon. And the kingdom has been divided into the north and the south. And there's about to be a disciplined time in Israel's upcoming future, our past, where the Assyrian Empire, capital city Nineveh, is about to come in and attack the northern empire, the north. Then the Babylonians will come in, and then the Persians. So as far as where are we in the timeline here with Amos, we are right here. And the clock is running out. And God is giving one last petition to say, listen, before the clock runs out, I need you to look at what you're depending on. Because I can deliver you from the Assyrians. But these other gods, the God of power, the God of money, the God of of other people's approval, the God of your own prestige and your own education, none of those things are going to protect you from what's coming. But I'm a gentleman And I'm not going to force you to believe in me. If you think those other gods will stop the Assyrians, (laughs) all right, let me know how that works out for you. And so today, as one of the major themes of the book has been worship and and our idols, we're going to really drill down into the idea of money today, because money's been a major theme going through the book, but he really hits this hard when we get to chapter 8 together. So here's a question I think that Amos is asking. How would you know if your relationship with money had gone awry? I don't know that it has. I know, but how would you know? Like, what would be the symptoms in your life if your relationship with money got out of sync? I just jot down a few symptoms. You're living for it. it. Certainly becomes true here in the northern kingdom. Just a, a, a death-defying fear of losing it. No one likes to lose money. But when you're consumed with fear, as if money is your life, things might have gotten out of sync. You're controlled by money. It controls the way you spend. It controls the way you save. It controls the way you give. You're controlled by it. You use it, money, to control other people. You make compromises to get it no matter how much you get, you had goals five years ago, you've hit those goals, and you're never satisfied by any number of it. You're thinking about it constantly. And basically, it, money, has become more than just a thing. Money's designed to be fun, it's designed to be fun, ways to invest in things that matter, God's priorities, your priorities, ways to do things that, that allow you to enjoy this life. But when it, money, becomes more than a thing, it becomes your life, things might be out of sync. I remember a buddy came walking into my office six, seven years ago, and he said, Chad, I make a great income. I'm a doctor. I get paid very, very well, but there's something going on in me. I'm like, well, tell me about that. He said, I'm just consumed with controlling my finances. I said, what does that look like? He said, well, I just find myself, like, between appointments, I go back and I check my stocks and check my stocks and check my stocks. Like, all day long, I find myself just consumed with what's that number? If it's gone up 2%, 5%, I feel good. If it's gone down 5%, oh, my goodness, I feel such panic and fear. And we began to chat about that and how money is a fun thing unless it's ruling your life. Money is designed like other things, like approval and, and status and, and, and family and other good things in life, to subordinate itself to God being number one in your life. He said, I don't know how to do that. It's like I'm in touch with a a guy at our church. They started doing Bible studies together. I checked in with him three months, six months later. I said, how are things going? He said, well, I still enjoy money. Great. I still don't like losing money. Good. That sounds like wisdom. But it's no longer controlling me. Because money had taken its proper place. I sat in another uh, meeting one time with a guy who uh, was, came into my office angry, just angry, because his parents, who were long, long, long way away from dying, had just gone over the will. And he was deeply concerned that his sister or brother might get a half of 1% more than he did. I mean, it was like a micro percentage that he was angry about, but he was just fuming. He felt entitled to, to his parents' money. I tried to remind him it was his parents' money. Uh, but that didn't go over well. And we began to chat, and I said, man, I said, this hypothetically speaking, I, I wrote a number on the board. I said, let's say this is the inheritance. You are so angry and so bothered and so frustrated that maybe somebody might get just a hair more than you. It's just taking away all your joy. He walked up to the board I'd written on a dry erase board, <laughs> kind of smugly, and he added a couple more zeros to the number I put up there. I said, that's the number we're talking about. It doesn't matter. You can add five more zeros to it. You're one of the few people I know who have affluence, you have wealth, and yet I've never seen someone who had so much enjoy it so little. You don't even know how to enjoy your enjoyments because you're consumed with anger and control and fear and entitlement. Really? And it's to begin a whole series of conversations on whether or not he was really free or was he being controlled by something, even though it had a lot of numbers next to it. See, Amos is going to talk about with this metaphor of summer fruit today. That's going to be his metaphor. And the question he's going to ask us is, are you investing, are your valuables something that famine cannot take away? Because God's going to say a famine is coming. And summer fruit, it's a reminder, where are your values? What do you value? Where do you put your priorities? And are the things you value things that a famine can't take away? Here's the famine metaphor he uses in the chapter. God says, I'm going to send a famine on the land. And the things you value, can they be taken away by a famine? There's a famine of bread, a famine of thirst for water. But there's a greater famine coming. And the greater famine is, I'm going to stop warning. I'm going to stop speaking. There's a famine for hearing the word of the Lord. You see, the real famine you should be worried about is that what sustains me, what guides me, what directs me is hearing from the Lord. That's the kind of valuable that can't be taken away from you, what you have in God. But you've built your life on something that can be taken away by famine. And there's a famine coming, and it's going to take away everything you think is valuable. How about you and I? Are the things you value most things that a famine could take away? Or are you instead prioritizing hearing from God, knowing God, hearing the word of the Lord? We're going to get two things to check. Two ways to check our fruit this morning that Amos is going to challenge us with. So that we can find the freedom of enjoying money and enjoying God rather than being controlled by it. What's the first thing we check? Well, He begins by saying, hey, check your fruit. It's the last chance the Assyrians are coming. Check your fruit. Check your fruit. It's his last chance before it goes bad. Here's how it begins in Amos 8.1. Thus the Lord God showed me, he showed him something. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. He said, Amos, what do you see? Amos is like, I see a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people. Which is kind of weird. Like right, when you think of summer fruit, you think fresh. You think beautiful. You don't neatly say the application is the end is near. So why would a basket of summer fruit clearly communicate in those days the end is near? And he's specifically talking to the northern kingdom, known as Israel. He's saying, I want my people Israel to know we're getting to the end of warnings. Summer season, summer fruit season, things are about to go bad. And I'm not going to pass by anymore. I'm not going to give any more warnings. This is literally the last call. Well, to understand that, you need to realize that in those days in the Middle East, if you didn't get to your fruit in summer quick enough, it would rot. So the idea here is not beautiful can't wait to take a bite of that kind of fruit. It's quite the opposite. It's rotting. You didn't get to it in time. It's sitting out there, rotting fruit at the last harvest. That's actually the picture of the summer fruit. And that's why it's like the end is near. You, you're almost to the point where maybe you could eat a piece of this or so, but for the most part, this is like last call summer fruit moment. And so the word in Hebrew doesn't just mean summer fruit, it means the the fruit that's been beaten down with the heat of the Middle East and it's starting to rot. And this is the final harvest. In fact, if you understand the agricultural seasons in in the Old Testament, and it's always hard for me to figure it out, so I put this chart up here for you. God designed their whole life around seven feasts, you know, Passover and first fruits and Sukkot, things like that. It was really built around the agricultural journey. So if you see across the top the different feasts they had, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of Purim, they went all through the year, the Feast of Pentecost. But how that related to your actual harvesting as a farmer is sometime around April you would harvest the barley. Sometime in May you'd harvest the wheat. June, July, the figs, the grapes. And the last harvest, the last call, was the dates and the summer figs, the summer fruit. And so God would send often to be early rains to help things go, winter rains, later rains. But then during the drought season, that's when you're harvesting. And so this metaphor very clearly said, hey, we're at the end of the season. It's drought time has come. It's in the last call of the last moment. You need to check your life for rot. And you've allowed the rot of other gods to steer you and turn you away from putting me at the center of your life. And if you don't take this last call, he says, when the Assyrians come in, it's going to be bad. He says, the songs of the temple that you've been singing, they're going to be wailing in that day, says the Lord God. There's going to be many dead bodies everywhere when the Assyrians come through. And they shall be thrown out in silence. No more worship, no more singing, silence. And yet God says, I don't want you to experience any of that. I want you to recognize the rot now so we can turn things around. Repentance is saying, yes, God, I agree with you. There's some rot in my life. God, I agree with you. I put other things in the center of my life besides you. And, God, I'm going to repent, and I want you to restore. I want you to refresh. I want you to bring back the joy again. I want you to give me the freedom of putting you in the center of my life so everything else takes its proper place. So how about you? Like that conversation I had that day in my office. Have you ever checked the fruit? Have you ever seen somebody checking fruit? Have you checked the fruit in your own heart? Is there any rot going on? Dissatisfaction? A total inability to find peace? No matter how much you save, it's never enough, and you're not free to spend because you're always saving. Or you're always spending, but you're not free to save or give. So many different forms this takes the form of entitlement, the form of envy, the form of jealousy, the form of greed, the form of dissatisfaction. In fact, it's interesting because when money takes its proper place, all of a sudden you can give without being controlled by giving. I'm not giving to get a reputation for giving, I'm giving because I want to be generous. I don't oversave because saving's important, and, and there's no numbers going to satisfy me, even though some numbers are better than others. It no longer becomes my God. I got a buddy of mine, he's a chemist, and he went through a real difficult time. About 25 years ago, he went through bankruptcy. And that has so haunted him that now he's got you know several million dollars in the bank and he's doing fine, thank you very much. But he's been wanting to spend on a condo. He's got plenty of money for it. His financial advisor says, hey, you can go for it under these parameters. And he's been talking about it now for about five years. He can't ever engage. Because the haunting reality of that bankruptcy from... X many years ago is so controlled him that he doesn't ever want to spend because the number in his bank account represents his, his peace. It's a sign of rot. Something's controlling you that's not God. Another buddy came in. I was talking to him one day, and as they we were chatting together, he said, you know what, I've got an enviable resume. Most people would die to have my career and my territory. The area he was in covered the whole tri-state area. He, he said, I dreamed of a job like this years ago. I'm like, Awesome. What's wrong? Now that I've got it, I wish my territory was bigger. Why Cincinnati? I mean, maybe it could have been New York, or it could have been Chicago, it could have been Atlanta. And I connected him with a friend at our church who began to walk him through the journey of what really matters and what's really important. If you're always dissatisfied and there isn't a rest that motivates your ambition, it might be a sign of rot. And God doesn't want you to rot. God doesn't want you to be enslaved. God wants you to be free. But you got to check your fruit. And check your fruit before it's too late. It's just going to steal your joy if you don't check the rot. Well, then he goes on. It's really interesting. He says, well, the other reason I want you to check your fruit is because you need to figure out what caused this. Like, what caused the rot? Like, what's underneath that? And this is where we get to the God idea. What have you been worshiping? your idols, that have driven you to this place of dissatisfaction? What have you been worshiping that's driven you to the place where there's rot showing up in your heart, in your thoughts, and mind? Here's how he says it. First principle, when you get obsessed with something besides God, it's going to cause you to sacrifice other people, but it will always cause you to sacrifice rest. Because every God requires sacrifice. Every God. But only the God of the Bible requires sacrifice and offers rest. You give from a place of rest. You work from a place of rest. You save from a place of rest. Not this kind of hollow black hole within you. Obsessions with anything besides God always lead you to sacrifice other people and sacrifice your rest. Here's what he says. it: Hear this, you who swallow up the needy. You're not caring about other people, you're sacrificing other people's needs because you're so consumed with your own wealth. And you make the poor of the land fail. you got plenty to give, but you're not giving because other people's needs aren't as important as your own. To which you're like, well, that's not me, or maybe you might think it is. Then he goes on, he says this, but also, it's not just sacrificing other people, it's also sacrificing your ability to rest, truly rest. Look how he says it. I've heard you say, oh, when will the new moon be over so we can get back to work and sell some grain? What does that mean? Well, the Jewish calendar is on a lunar calendar. So as soon as there was a new moon, that was a monthly celebration besides Sabbath where you didn't work. They kind of shut down working, take the day off, relax, think about God, enjoy everything God's given you. So once a month at the new moon was a non-work day. He said, those non-work days, I can see you just tapping your foot. Oh, when is this going to be over so we can get back to selling grain? You're so driven that you can't even take one day off a month for a new moon, and the whole time you're like, i got to get back to work. i got to get back to work. To which I'm are like, okay, Chad, now you're getting a little too close to home. <laughs> right? Now we're starting to feel, oh, yeah, I don't know that I know how to rest or that I know how to not work. I, I do have this drivenness that even one day a month, I just don't have time for it. Well, that's what he's saying, wait. You know, when God led his people out of slavery, he gave them the Ten Commandments, and one of those things was to take a day of rest. Why? Because slaves never rest. When you take every seven days and you don't be productive, you don't produce anything, you enjoy what you have, it's a way of declaring to the heavens that you are not a slave. I'm not enslaved to my calendar. I'm not enslaved to my schedule. I'm not enslaved anymore. I am free. And yet you can be politically free and not spiritually free. And you might think you're free, but you're enslaved because you can't even take one time a month to relax. You can't even take one time a week because they complain about the weekly one too. They say, when will the new moon be passed so we can get back to selling and working? And the Sabbath, that every seventh day thing, Ah, when can we trade some wheat again? They can't rest because they're still enslaved. Because their work ethic, which is a great thing, is driving them and it will never be satisfied unless it too subordinates itself to God. So here's the question. What might I be obsessed with, what might you be obsessed with, that's keeping us from enjoying the the bounty of God And has caused the rot. I talk a lot about idols. Here's kind of a test of different idols. There's a lot up there. I want to go through it a little slowly here. When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, we begin saying in our heart, you hear it whisper to you, sometimes shout to you, my life only has meaning if I have power over others. I've heard that whisper. That's power idolatry. I only have worth if I am loved and respected. I like to be loved and respected, don't you? But when it becomes your God, you've got an approval idol in your life. Life only has meaning if I have a certain quality of life. That's what Israel had, a comfort idol. Life only has meaning if I attain mastery in some area. Control idol. I only... Life only has meaning and I have worth if people are dependent on me and and when people need me. Well, it's nice to have people need you, but that's a a helping idol. Life only has meaning if someone is there to help me. It's a dependence idol. Life only has meaning if I reach that certain level, certain title, certain territory, certain number of the bank account. Okay? That's a materialism idol. My life only has meaning if if, uh, my children and my parents are happy please don't put your identity and and joy in the hands of the obedience of your kids. It is not a setup for success. That's a family idol. Your parents will, will let you down at times, and your kids will let you down at times. Don't make that the center of your happiness. My life only has meaning if my political cause is ascending. That's an ideological idolatry and... Maybe the last eight years, yours have been well, and then yours have crashed down. And do you really want your happiness to be penned on politicians? (laughs) No, whatever side they're on. God's not a donkey, and God's not an elephant. He's a lion. Life only has meaning if, if I look good. If I can only imagine myself dating people who look a certain way, I can only imagine myself in the mirror looking a certain way, you might have an image idol. And last one, my life only has meaning if I'm productive at work, and when I'm not productive, I don't have any meaning You've got a work idol. And all of those things, good things, right? They're all good things. But when they become the center of your life, they will require you to sacrifice everything else. You'll sacrifice your relationships for work. You'll sacrifice your marriage for your kids. You will sacrifice. All gods demand sacrifice. But only the God of the Bible demands sacrifice and offers rest when he's at the center of your life. Don't you want that? Don't you want to still work hard and still have great relationships, but to do it from a place of rest where he's at the center of your life, where money and power and ideology has taken its proper place. He goes on, he says, now now that we're getting deep here, what's causing the rot, let's go a little deeper. Amos says, you see, your obsession with things, that was their specific idol, was comfort and money and power. My obsession with things leads me to two things. I devalue people. And I start making compromises, right? Because your God requires compromises. So you compromise your integrity, you compromise all the things because you've got to get access to more of that God. He says, here's what you guys do. You're so obsessed with comfort and money, you make the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales of deceit. See, in those days, you had a scale to determine money because it wasn't kind of a standardized money. So you had a standardized weight. Let's call it a pound for the sake of ours. So you had a standardized one pound weight. And so someone's going to buy your sheep or buy your land. You might say, hey, I need you to put a pound of ephah or a pound of silver, a pound of gold on here. So you put the gold on there, and this weight would then let you know when you have one pound. But you're thinking, you know what, wouldn't it wouldn't be nice, many transactions I make each day, each month, each year. If I added a little extra weight to my one pound standardized weight, I could get a pound point two of gold and cheat people. It's just a little bit. I work really hard. I'm not getting what I think it's worth. So they would add a little extra weight to the standardized weight. So it would take a little extra coinage to balance out. They began to make compromises. Compromises to their cash, inflating the currency. Compromises to their interaction with other people. Then they begin to devalue people because they love things and use people to get things. He says, You've, you made your scales by deceit. You say, well, I want to buy the poor. So I'm buying human beings with silver. Why in the world would you take people made in God's image and prefer silver over people? Because that's what God's do. You devalue the people. People are just cogs in a wheel to serve your greater purpose. You sell the needy for a pair of sandals. I'd rather have a sandals than to care for somebody. And I'm even willing to sell some bad wheat. I wouldn't eat this stuff, but if you will, I'll give it to you. And God says, listen... I'm not going to forget this, and I can't keep a blind eye to you forever, which is why I'm trying to warn you. You've got to change. You've got to modify. You've got to turn around. The Lord swore by the pride of Jacob, which sounds bad, right, the pride of Jacob, but this is kind of a phrase used to describe God. They would often call Yahweh the pride of Jacob. So God's saying, I swear by myself. It says this in 1 Samuel 15:29. They called God the strength of Israel, the pride of Israel. So God is saying, I swear by myself, I'm not going to forget these works that you've chosen another God besides me. Shall the land not tremble for this? Everyone mourn who dwells in it. All of it shall swell like the river and subside like the river of Egypt. There's bad stuff coming like an earthquake. A metaphorical earthquake in the Assyrians and a literal earthquake is coming as well. If you remember way back when, about eight weeks ago, when we began in chapter 1 of Amos... Amos said, these are the words of Amos two years before the earthquake. There's a literal earthquake coming, and that's going to shake them up to see what's valuable. But he gave them two years to check the fruit, two years to turn around, two years of Amos saying, come on, guys, come on. But the earthquake's coming. And it does. In fact, scientists have found that's exactly what happens, just like the Bible um, predicted and articulated as around 750 B.C., there was a gigantic earthquake that hit in Israel. Magnitude 8.2, geologists tell us. We've been able to figure out where it was and where it's sited by the seismic hits of what happened to different statues and things at the time. The earthquake debris at six different sites, Hazar, Delhaliai, Gezer, Lachish, uh, Tel-Judaii, and Hazza point to a single large regional earthquake that occurred around 750 B.C. God's going to shake your valuables. Is an earthquake and a famine gonna get rid of what's really valuable to you? Then you might be anchored into the wrong thing. Josephus, a Jewish historian, says the same thing. He cites this earthquake. A great earthquake shook the ground, and rent was made in the temple, and the bright rays from the sun shone through it and fell upon the king's face, inasmuch so that the leprosy seized upon him immediately, and before the city, at a place called Erog, half the mountain broke off from the rest of the On the west. So his face just turns white like leprosy because all the things he valued got crashed down in a moment because of the earthquake. And that's the idea God's getting in here that in that day it's going to come to pass. There's a day coming, there's an earthquake coming that's going to shake your valuables says the Lord, and I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight, and I will turn your feasts in the morning and your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth onto every waist and baldness on every head. Oh, that's, I don't like that one. And I will make it like morning for an, oh, look at this, darkness during the day, hmm. Darkening the earth during the day, morning like an only sun, hmm. So here's the question. What will survive the earthquake? If things get shaken, and life will shake you, right? It will shake your valuables. Like being on a roller coaster, you know. And then, and all the valuables you throw at your head, you're holding on to. There's a big net at a roller coaster park. It's holding all your valuables that you didn't hold on to. An earthquake will shake loose everything that's not secure. And yet, I think this is a hint at a prediction of a time in the future when darkness comes over the land in broad daylight. When Jesus died for our idols, for our damnable good works. Oh, we turn from our bad works, but what we really need to turn from is our good works, thinking that they can save us. And Jesus is dying for our gods, giving power over the gods we put in our life. And he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Matthew 27. And it says, The earth quaked. And the curtain was ripped in two and what sustained the shaking of the earth jesus who died and three days later came back from the dead you want to secure yourself to the one who overcame and withstood the shaking of the ultimate earthquake the death on the cross He says, if you anchor into me, I can sustain you whatever earthquake you're facing. (laughs) He is the only son that can sustain you in that day. So, what's the application for you and I? Well, again, he warns of this famine. He says, I want you to replace the inner famine of putting other things beside me in the core. I want you to replace that with a satisfying feast. Feasting after my word and seeking after me. If you will seek after me, you will find the satisfaction of knowing what really matters in life and aligning to it. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God. I'm going to send a famine, and we're going to see if your valuables can sustain the famine. Not a famine of bread, not a famine of thirst for water. You've already had that. That didn't get your attention. But there's going to come something worse, a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. You're going to wander from sea to sea, from north to east. "Where Where are the prophets? Where are the prophets? God, we need to hear from you. You're going to run to and fro, and you're going to be seeking what you should be seeking now, seeking the word of the Lord, but you're not going to find it. This is why it's so important that we lean into God. Because what happens is you can be freer than you are. You can be free in knowing who God is and allowing all those other good things in your life, work and family and kids and money and power, to take its proper place. In fact, that's what we're about as a church, creating environments where people can find, why are we studying this together? Why are we studying this old book called Amos? Because the Holy Spirit challenges us to realign ourselves to him. So a few weeks ago, I got an opportunity to talk to my friend Greg. Many of you know Greg Frappier. And he shared his journey of finding God in the center of his life and why his titles and his roles and his anxieties took their proper place. Let's watch.
1: I was uh, raised Catholic. We lived right next door to the Catholic Church and then subsequently became an altar boy. Um, There was a long time in my life though that uh, God was not really in my life. Uh, Raised Catholic, you know, we have CCD or what we call catechism and it was teaching me as far as stories of the Bible and to have faith, but really didn't tell me how to have faith. So fast forward, I meet my wife, Dani, uh, and she is much further in her faith than myself, Uh, but I didn't realize it at the time. She was raised Methodist, and uh, I'm a physician, work emergency medicine, and I would have to work typically every other weekend. So um, when it came to churches and uh, and such, she was always the one being of deeper faith, and also um, she had to pick out the church that we are going to go to. So she had visited some various churches, and then uh, Horizon was at the Cincinnati Country Day School. And she took the girls, uh, our two youngest, and then... uh, It was basically uh, like I've heard the kids really liked what they saw and experienced, and we stayed. Why do I keep coming back to Horizon? It's because Horizon has really helped teach me uh, a better uh, understanding of how God is involved in my life. I've been taught better how to God's teachings and such, and how to relate that in my relationship with my wife, uh, my children, and even at work. Having learned so much as a child, not knowing God, or how to have a relationship with God, I now can say I truly have a relationship with God. And I can talk to Him, I can ask Him questions, I can thank Him for... uh, Uh, what he's done for me. You know, I'm a blessed man. It's a cliche, but I have a beautiful family, a beautiful wife uh, who has given me grace, and uh, God has been good. Well, we had a situation that was very overwhelming, and, you know, me as a father, I want to be able to take care of this. Uh, I want to figure out what do we need to do to... Uh, take care of the situation, but uh, I was overwhelmed, and because of that, and now having so much more faith than I did when I was a younger man, I was able to, you know, say to God, please take this, I can't, I can't handle this, and he did, and he lightened the load, and we were able to then figure out what we needed to do. Well, my wife and I decided to retire early, and Uh, I had fear of financial, uh, but God has provided uh, that I couldn't believe as far as uh, taking care of that. And when my retirement, I am very happy to be retired, but also um, I have no feeling of uh, loss or Lack of um, my own personal, uh, or me as a person, Uh, I don't have to say or have someone tell me that I'm a doctor or Hey, Doctor Frappier. I don't need that now.
0: Several aspects of that I love. I love the idea that titles are important. Worked really hard for that for that doctor, and yet it doesn't define him in retirement. That there could be fears over finances. And you can go through whatever that challenge was he talked about. It was the earthquake. And it challenged him to find out what really mattered. Earthquakes are coming to all of our lives. What we want to do as a church is we want to create a feast. To teach people how to feast after God. How to seek after God. How to find out what really matters. And that's the feast we want to prepare for you. So every week we prepare a feast. Because we want you and your kids and your students to come and discover who God is. And God doesn't need your money. God has plenty of money. God knows you need to put money in its proper place. So I hope you're giving to lots of different things. I really do. And I hope that when you see the needy, when you see people around you, that you haven't desensitized yourself because Amos says there's needy all around us. But there's something about how money connects with God that when you put money in its proper place, man, there's such freedom there. You can enjoy money again. You don't oversave, you don't overgive, you don't overspend because God is the one who's directing it all. So, Again, as I I began the service today, it's been amazing to see how God has been faithful to us as a church. Just putting out a feast, even in the middle of COVID. Let's have two services. Let's continue to figure out how to do online services. And and maybe you have felt like, you know what, God has given me a feast. And he has realigned me. And I do want to put money in its proper place. So I would just encourage you. I I could put a a big, you know, thermostat up or, or, or temperature gauge or how much money we need as a church and how much needs there are. And I could tell you that there's needs of the church, why we need you to give. But that's not what this is about. That's not what Amos is about. It's about giving, not because God needs it or the church needs it, but because you need it. And when you give to God, when you serve with your life, and you give you your time, your treasure, and your talents, what happens is everything else takes its proper place. So I hope really, to Horizon, I hope you go, man, I do feel the feast of coming each week. I do feel the growth that's happening in me, especially during this earthquake that was COVID. And, and I hope you are giving big to Horizon and the work that's doing here. But that's just a symptom of what's really going on. What I really hope is that you're putting God in the center of your life so that you begin to sensitize yourself to his eyes and his ears to the needs all around you. And you can walk with confidence knowing that God is at the center of my life. Whatever famine comes, whatever earthquake comes, I have aligned my heart and my calendar and my thoughts to the God who made me. That's how we find Freedom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible challenge from Amos and what it means to worship you. And we ask for the rest that comes of recognizing you died for our idols and you sustained the ultimate earthquake to rip that curtain to give us full access to the presence of God, not based on, on what we do for you, but based on what you did for us. We ask the things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Go enjoy a bagel and some coffee and we'll see you all next week.